Night Talk, giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. Monday to Thursdays, 10 p.m. A very monumental judgment came out of the High Court today where Gerard Ackerman was found guilty of orchestrating a child sex abuse ring where they sexually abused young boys in particular from the ages of 14 to 16, him and along his clients. It seems to be a service that he rendered over there. How do child sex trafficking rings come about? But more importantly, how are they sustained? And why is it, why is it so difficult to police? This case, of course, is a major victory in terms of that. And we're going to be talking about that right now. Rowena Bernard was a lecturer at the School of Law at Howard College uh, at the University of KwaZulu-Natal is my guest this evening. Rowena, thank you so much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. Good evening, Oliver, and good evening to all your listeners. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your show to share some information on this very important um, issue. Yeah. Uh, Rowena, child sex trafficking ring seems to be a, uh, something that has to work with some level of sophistication. It, it's, it's not an isolated incident. It's an occurrence. It's a habit. But there also is a system built around it. What are the elements that make up a system for something to be classified as a child sex trafficking ring? Thanks, Oliver. Um, well, firstly, let's start off by looking at what is a trafficking ring. And, and generally, it involves someone or a group of persons who traffic in something um, such as drugs or um, children or um, adult females or male, uh, male people as well. And whether this is legal or illegal to do so, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. But the, the point is that there's a trafficking of something or someone um, yeah. that we, we look at, right? Um, how do they sustain themselves is a big, it's not, it's not difficult to, to, um, to understand, simply because of the fact that um, poverty, unemployment, HIV, child-headed households all contribute um, to creating an environment for, for children, in particular um, uh, adults, to be trafficked. Because what your traffickers normally do is they lure um, people into these kinds of syndicates with an opportunity for a better life. Um, and it's yeah. mainly entered into to, you know, to, um, to sustain the, 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 uh, the people in terms of their poverty experiences. It's an exploitation of exactly those sets of issues that you outline over there. But for it to, to, to remain sustained, I mean, society has to turn a blind eye to it. Oftentimes, we, we, we don't believe children when they tell us that they're being molested or raped. Um, oftentimes, we don't believe children when they tell us they feel unsafe in certain instances. Where has society really lost the plot with this? If I must be honest with you, Oliver, generally the people who are involved in the trafficking of, of these children are not unfamiliar. It's actually the parents themselves that actually sell children um, to these syndicates in exchange for money. Wow. Yes. As yeah. In order to support themselves and to have a better quality of life for the rest of the family. So, you know, it's not just merely... It's uh, you know, it's a, um, a, um, 
so sorry, it's late at night and the brains are not functioning so well. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> so as I was saying to you, it's, it's not like the uh, perpetrator is unbeknown to the child. Um, it's done with intention and it's deliberate at times. Yeah. So these children are not protected at all. Um, this is not an unfamiliar situation um, uh, to any of the countries in Africa because child trafficking, sexual exploitation of children is very, very common um, in many of the African states that we have here. Um, so, you know, it, there's not much protection if, if the family is, is involved in this. Yeah. Yeah, give us a call. The number to dial is 86 0032032 I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice on 0614104107. Let's go to the Gerard Eckerman case in, 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 in particular here. Uh, this was a, an important moment for our jurisprudence, but it was also an important learning moment for society. Right, because we got to learn through through evidence about some of the inner workings of this level of syndication. Mm. Can you perhaps talk to us about the key features that the court highlighted here that it found impunable? Okay. So it's important to note that we've got national legislation in South Africa. Um, we've got the Children's Act, the Sexual Offences Act, the, the Trafficking in Persons Act, and even our Child Justice Act. And it provides um, an adequate legal framework for the, the actual legal protection of children. But the problem that we have is not the lack of legislation that we have. We have many other problems that are underlying, such as enforcement issues, monitoring of um, these laws to ensure that children are protected. Um, and at the same time, we also have the implementation um, of these legal frameworks. Um, so this yeah. case is very, very fundamental because um, we now have jurisprudence that establishes that child trafficking is very rife in South Africa. And we must also remember that South Africa itself is a hub for receiving of children from other countries. So um, mm. it, it becomes a very critical issue that we need to be able to, to monitor especially because it is a cross-border issue, um, especially the fact that uh, we have um, the cross-border officials who are bribed, um, who allow these children to travel in from other countries into South Africa. Um, and because of that factor and because of other factors, such as the lack of proper documentation, um, these children are exploited. They are trafficked into sexual activities. They are exploited economically, um, and there's legally no protection. So the case itself is very, very fundamental. Um, and, and obviously, it's now established a very interesting uh, jurisprudence for us. And I'm looking forward to analyzing the case and, you know, obviously publishing yeah. an analysis on the judgment itself. Um, yeah, and hopefully, you know, this gives us a better grounding and better reaching in terms of how we move forward with the matter. How much, how much of our child sex trafficking problem is a legislative problem and an enforcement problem? I ask this because I want to rewind you a couple of years ago, circa mm -hmm. 2017 about, when 
Home Affairs found itself um, in, in a bit of a controversy there when it repealed as part of President Ramaphosa's stimulus package in 2018, when it repealed a certain legal requirement that if you travel with a minor, you must have an unabridged uh, birth certificate and uh, written consent through an affidavit from the co-parent of the child that they had given you permission to travel with the child. And the sentiment was that it, it deter- that piece of legislation and that policy deters a lot of international travelers from coming to South Africa and it's harming tourism in the country. That was the root of its controversy. But the argument was where we instituted this uh, legislation so that we can protect vulnerable children. How much of our child sex trafficking problem is a legislative and policy enforcement problem. Okay, so unfortunately I don't have exact stats on it, but from my research, um, a big issue in Africa is the lack of documentation uh, for children. And the fact that they do not have documentation means that they are prevented from traveling across the borders legally. So what happens is that these children, either through um, smuggling or trafficking, enter into the country as such um, without proper documentation. And without that proper documentation, there's no way to regulate the exact nature of child trafficking and sexual exploitation of children. Um, It is a serious challenge. And and one of the reasons is because of the infrastructures um, that exist in, in, in the countries themselves. So it is a significant problem and it definitely enhances um, the exploitation of children as such. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and let's go to the courtroom for a minute. Generally, the prosecution of rape of a minor um, mm. is an incredibly difficult exercise very specifically because it reintroduces secondary traumatic experiences. Um, And oftentimes, for instance, that's the one instance where the court really does allow you uh, as a litigator to lead uh, your, 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 uh, or to to lead in evidence, uh, testimony uh, in the dock and that sort of stuff. And it makes certain uh, adjustments to the rules of the court in how it's prosecuted. But have we created as best as possible a litigation environment through which we can more successfully uh, prosecute child uh, sex trafficking and child abuse and rape in particular, but more so use that as a bargaining tool to get a lot more parents and a lot more communities and a lot more children being willing to come forward? The challenge, as I pointed out, is the actual implementation and the monitoring and the enforcement. Now, that is critical in ensuring and reducing the the trafficking of children. Um, Bribery and corruption is another problem um, that we have when it comes to um, these kinds of issues. Now, we must remember that child trafficking and also the sexual exploitation of children, which refers to pornography and prostitution and um, the use of uh, photographs and pornography, are all criminal law offenses. But when it comes to the actual implementation, this is done by labor inspectors who are not equipped as um, uh, as a police officer 
um, to actually investigate the, man, man, uh, the matter. All that they can do is monitor and report the matter and then allow for the normal uh, process of investigation to actually occur. So there is this gap that exists um, with regards to child trafficking and uh, the monitoring of the sexual exploitation of, of children. And it continues to grow. It's not like, you know, we've got a decline. Because if you're looking yeah. at the um, International Labour Organization stats, in sub-Saharan Africa on its own, there is a constant increase in child labour. Um, whereas in other regions, um, such as the Asia and the Caribbean, there's been a downward decline in, in child labour. But yet in sub-Sahara, you find that children um, as young as between the ages of 5 and 12 um, are exposed to um, exploitation and, and child labour. So it is, a, it is a serious issue that we have on our hands. And um, as much as, you know, we have the courtrooms um, becoming more prone and more proactive in in ensuring that um, traffickers are penalized, as we see in the Ackerman judgment. The problem is getting the matter into the courtroom for litigation. That is where the challenge um, actually is. Yeah. And a lot of people do not come forward with these issues because they themselves are the perpetrators of the crime. Because they, in order for, um, you know, we call it what we call as uh, survival sex, where children are exchanged for basic necessities such as food and shelter, um, even um, education, and even settling debts that are owed by family members. So it's very unlikely that they will come forward with that information. Yeah. And just yeah. lastly, uh, in the last two minutes that we have, I, I, we have to touch on the advent uh, of social media and, and mm. online tools as a platform through which child yeah. sex trafficking recruitment takes place, often where ch children are lured and baited into these sort of spaces. Um, cyber protection and cyber regulation is something that South Africa is still lagging with when you compare mm. it to the global community. But is there an opportunity here to inject uh, uh, you know, uh, in intellectual property into uh, informing in, in the requisite and pe perhaps formidable uh, cyber protection uh, legislature to be able to prevent a lot of these things? Yes. Um, there's a lot of room for that kind of development, and you're absolutely correct when we say that in terms of our cyber law, uh, South Africa does lag behind. And social media is one of the most um, common um, me uh, methods of luring victims to the urban centers within South Africa, um, including, you know, posting of fake job advertisements on social media where they lure people, the, the children, into these jobs, um, offering them a better way of, of living and an improved standard of living. And the reality is that when these children get to um, uh, the um, advertiser, they are actually then um, trafficked and exposed to all sorts of things. So, you know, um, definitely there is room for improvement in terms of legislation to uh, ensure more protection for children. But it's also, you know, it's not just about the law itself. It's also about society and how we regulate and control what our children are actually doing. And that is a, uh, is, is a gap in itself. Um, but remember also that a lot of the children that we're referring to 
I come from poverty-ridden um, countries where, you know, it's not so much social media that attracts them, but, you know, um, even in the domestic service sector, uh, children as young as 12 years old are working as domestic servants. Um, and that's because they're lured and their family sends them off from the rural areas into the urban areas to earn a better living. But the reality is that these children are then subjected to serious abuse. Yeah, so there's a lot of yeah. room for um, improvement. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely tragic. Uh, thank you so much for your time this evening, Rowena. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, Rowena Bernard, lecturer of law at the Howard College. Uh, University of KwaZulu-Natal.